0: For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director, Shane Woodford.
1: All right, good morning. Welcome to Inside Politics. Shane Woodford here. A real pleasure to be back on the show and a pleasure to be joined by my panel members this morning. Global BC's Keith Baldry, BC Today's Shannon Waters and the Vancouver Suns. Rob Shaw, welcome all. Hey Shane, welcome back. Thank you, sir. Good to be back. Uh, Well, I don't know what the hell we're going to talk about today. Uh, A pretty interesting proportional representation debate last night. Uh, For my money, it was uh, much too short, but uh, it was what it was. Uh, Keith, why don't we start with you? I mean, we always talk of these things in terms of winners and losers. I don't know if we can use that context here, but uh, what do you kind of draw out of what we saw last night?
2: Well, you know, both both leaders made the points they wanted to make. Uh, Unfortunately, they stepped on each other's lines for the first half of the debate, and I don't think that served either of them very well. Certainly my Twitter feed, uh, the general comment from many people was, the pox from both your houses for being rude to each other, and and that inevitably occurs when you get these, these sort of political debates with leaders. They, they're instructed to keep talking as much as they can. I'm not sure that's always the best advice, but you know, uh, Wilkinson wanted to really raise the uh, – or shine the spotlight on the on the unanswered questions about uh, post-referendum, and I think he was effective in doing that. That's got people talking today about the unknown uh, uh, questions about uh, we still don't know the ridings, the number of MLAs, who's going to decide all this stuff. And John Horgan made the points he wanted to make, uh, and I think he's got to be happy with that. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted to basically emphasize – sort of the the leap of faith that something better could be a, a, achieved here in terms of electing politicians rather than the current system, and I think he uh he exposed the flaws of the current system and he raised the hopes of, of different systems but both of them I think have to walk away somewhat satisfied with uh, with the messaging that they uh, they took into this thing uh, but again at the end of the day i 'm not convinced. Uh, that many minds were, were were changed here. I don't think a lot of people who were on the fence got off the fence. And I don't think anybody who was sort of <clears throat> pro-PR uh, suddenly became pro first-past-the-post and vice versa. If, uh, I don't think a lot of uh, well, PR converts were achieved last night as well.
1: Yeah, I know. I agree. By the way, uh, Keith, why the half-hour limit? Was that a, was that just the time the, the, the media consortium had or where did that come from? Well,
2: Talk about this—it's uh, commercial time. There is the the commercial realities of media outlets. This is money. This costs genuine money uh, to put on uh, to give up prime time uh, programming, which uh, brings in a significant amount of revenue, which pays for everybody's jobs. And the other thing is, we had a really interesting discussion about this. You said you wish it had gone longer. I'm not convinced anything. Greater would have been achieved by going longer. It was one issue. Mm. Uh, it wasn't. A, it wasn't like an election debate where you're talking about taxes and education and health care, and you're all over the map and you can you have so many issues. This was one issue. First past the post versus proportional representation. They I don't. Uh, they would have just kept repeating themselves over and over again if we went another half hour. So uh, you know we were joking. We could have done this in 15 minutes. We said <laughs> no. We'll, we'll do a half hour. And I I, I think i think it, it achieved what it could have achieved i'm not sure anything greater would have come from from extending the debate past what it was last night mm,
1: okay uh rob you've said on this show several times that uh, this process is only going to make us all stupider uh we're neck deep in it now and we've seen the proportional representation debate uh, do you see anything so far that moves you off that position or no
3: no mission accomplished we're <laughs> having participated in this process i think I think we could have gone longer last night. I slightly disagree with Keith. I, I think we're at the point where if the TV stations don't want to air it for more than half an hour, then let's find some other way to do it because 30 minutes was ridiculously short. And, I, it's like, everyone just repeated their lines, and then we were out of time. So I, I, it did, did, that format did absolutely nothing to me. But if I was looking I, – I felt at the end of the debate last night, and I thought about it last night, and I came up this morning and thought some more – I give the victory in this debate to Andrew Wilkinson, and I think it's not because he was necessarily impressive uh, personally. Uh, that's a whole other issue. I think it's because his strategy was correct, which is to simply ask very simple questions about the voting systems that ordinary people, my friends and family that I talk to, are asking me. Yeah. Happens, how, how many votes do I get? Or what riding am I in? Those are, the, those are kind of when you boil away a lot of what's going on here. Those are just the simple, ordinary voter questions. And the liberal strategy to come in and ask Corgan again and again and get him flustered um, and unable to answer it was a very good one. Because at the end of the day, that's the NDP's responsibility. They set up the referendum. Yeah. They picked the three options they have designed this thing from the start, and it's incumbent on them to be able to explain it. And the reason that they can't explain it is because it is complicated beyond belief. And I think we're seeing the beginning of the reckoning on the NDP side that they, they, as my colleague Von Palmer put it, were too smart by half in the way they set this referendum up and the options that they chose. And it's much harder for them to convince people to vote for these than it is for Andrew Wilkinson to just poke holes with simple questions. And that was, in my mind, coming away last night, I thought Victory
1: for Team Wilkinson. Yeah, and it's an issue. I think it's easier to attack than defend on uh, very much. So, uh, Shannon, my after watching that thing, I mean, we're all we're all deeply engaged in this uh, because it's our jobs. But I, I just wondered from the perspective of somebody who's not anywhere near deeply as engaged, if they decided, you know, they haven't really paid attention to this process. They're going to cut out half an hour of their time. They're going to watch this thing with the goal of getting informed uh, so they can fill out this ballot that's been sitting on their kitchen table for a couple of weeks. Um, I don't think that they got much out of that what do you think
4: No, I don't think so either. In conversations, at least with my parents, sort of confirm that. um, My mother in particular was very disappointed uh, with both of their performances, um, both Wilkinson and Horgan. And I agree with Rob that Wilkinson's strategy to just keep pushing, you know, explain the systems to us, explain what the ridings are going to look like, explain how all of this is going to be decided afterwards, um, was effective. I also think. I agree with him in that the liberals are in an easier position because they've decided they're not really going to offer much that's constructive about the referendum. They're just going to pick at the unknowns and um, the possibilities under PR what things could look like. I really would have liked to see Horgan just give a brief explanation of the three different systems, I do think it's possible to do that. Um, I wish Melanie Mark would have done so, um, (laughs) because I don't think it's impossible to offer relatively straightforward and concise explanations of the PR systems. The problem is that there are still so many unknowns, and so I think that the NDP strategy was kind of Let's not even bother because even if Horgan offers an explanation, Wilkinson's just going to go after him for the things that he can't explain right now because they're going to be decided after the referendum. Um, So I would have liked to see a little more substance from Horgan. Um, Wilkinson, though, I mean, I saw a lot of people talking about the fact that he didn't didn't seem to stand up for the system that he's advocating for. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's something that I think people would have liked to see more of. What is so good about first-past-the-post that we should be keeping it?
1: Keith, uh, do you agree with that? I was a little surprised that he didn't mount a defense of, of first-past-the-post as much as he attacked where the details were on proportional representation.
2: Well, I think that, uh, that was part, basically the core of his strategy. I mean, I, I agree with Rob that, um, you know, the Wilkinson, because Horgan is advocating change, uh, it's incumbent on him to explain uh, in In more detail, why we need a change and what the change would look like and uh, he didn 't do that and so Wilkinson did have the advantage of being able to seize upon that i don 't think he had to really uh, defend first past the post as basically cast dispersions and doubts on a leap into a new system of which we don't know a lot of details. And I think that plays right to the core of many, many voters' hearts, that um, you're asking me to change the voting system, but you won't give me the details. And I've certainly picked that. I gave two speeches this week to different, very different groups, and all of them to a person afterwards in the Q&A wanted to know, why don't we know more about this, about ridings and MLAs and how we vote? And I think that's a big advantage of, for the no campaign, and I think the, the Liberals in Wilkinson rightly seized upon that and made that the core of his uh, presentation last night. I don't think he has to defend first past the post, uh, because it's a system that has got its flaws and people are, can be cranky about it, but when you ask people to switch, they want to more, know more details, and Wilkinson and exposed and uh, that vulnerability of uh, the NDP's uh, position, which is not a lot of detail. And uh, and I think that, it's, again, it comes down to who, how many people put ballots in the envelope. So right now, I, I agree with Rob. I think Wilkinson came on ahead.
1: Uh, Rob, let's talk a bit about uh, John Horgan's defense. I mean, it was a one-trick pony from Andrew Wilkinson. He really hounded him, as you pointed out. So the response from Mr. Horgan was uh, varied. It was uh, about change and making your vote count, hope. Um, you know, do you want to see a minority of votes, get a majority of power? And as far as the other details, it will all be decided by an Electoral Boundary Commission, as it is under the, under the current system from time to time. Does all of that hold water or No.
3: I don't think so. Um, you know, I think the NDP's best line in the debate came afterwards, and it actually came from our, our friend and colleague, Richard Sussman who described it as hope versus fear. And that's where you see the NDP going this morning, is this idea of they, they're, they're campaigning on a hope, the hope we can do something better versus the fear of change. And that's probably what they're going to zero down on in the, in the last few days. I think we need to call a little bit of BS on the Horgan defense that this thing is going to be decided by a boundaries commission. Only the ridings will be decided by a boundaries commission. The rest of the details, all the other questions about lists and, uh, you know, the types of MLAs and uh, regional MLAs, that's going to be decided by a legislature committee. And guess who has the majority on the legislature committee? It's not a utopian um you know sort of like let's get together and find consensus the greens and ndp will have the majority so it's you are leaving the option up to the ndp and it it, whether that bothers you or not at least we should be honest about how the process is going to unfold and i think horgan i'm not sure he deliberately kind of tried to mislead people i think he likes the idea of the boundaries commission but it only does one thing it only does riding boundaries And the rest of it, he gets to decide. And it's a fair criticism, I think, from Wilkinson to point that out. What I think is going to happen, and we can discuss this, um, and welcome you guys' thoughts on it, is if the yes side has to pull the emergency brake on this thing in the next week, I think they start to focus on one option, And, and that option is probably MMP. And they're going to start directing people to MMP, and they're going to start trying to build on Horgan's comment that he doesn't like the closed-list version of MMP, and siphon people towards the system that's most widely used and is the least scary and maybe the easiest to understand because you can Google it and other countries use it, and that'll that'll try to backstop their argument. That's where I think we're going to go because, based on last night, the idea that all this is going to get decided by the NDP later uh, is, not, is a hurdle that the S yes side has to overcome, and it's a pretty steep one.
1: Yeah, maybe we should have got that one option we were promised in the election campaign. Shen, what do you think of that?
4: Um. Yeah, I mean, I I can see where people have concerns about politicians making decisions that are going to affect the way they govern. Um, but this is this is something that is done all the time. I guess I'm one of those people, like Rob said, that it doesn't really bother me that we're going to have a committee made up of. The representation that the parties have in the legislature so the ndp and the liberals will have most of the seats the Green and and probably a similar number of seats possibly the ndp with one more um, and the greens are going to have a seat at the table as well i mean many decisions within our system already are made that way by a parliamentary committee um, but i do think for a lot of people that you know saying that politicians are going to make these decisions for us after we are asked to vote on the issue um, is a question mark, is a concern. Um, and, and Horgan, as Rob pointed out, did not explain it very well. You know, he's talking about the Boundaries Commission, and it's true they would be setting the writing. And I think what Horgan was trying to point to in that is that writings change all, not all the time, but as populations shift, he pointed to his own um, riding in Langford, which has gotten smaller and smaller. He's run in the same place, but it's had different names and different boundaries, riding shift and people don't make a big deal about it when we're not looking at changing the electoral system um but it has become a concern you know within the election some people are very hung up on riding maps i also know a lot of people who couldn't care less about sort of the way their actual riding is going to look they're more focused on sort of big picture Mm. but i think that comes down again to sort of what what Richard said last night, the hope versus fear. I think this referendum really comes down to maybe not even so much the hope versus fear, but how you want to see our democracy function. Do you like a majoritarian system where the largest block of voters sort of gets to steer the direction that the province is going to go in by picking the ruling party, or do you want to see a more representative legislature? And there are arguments that can be made for both that are that reasonable people can appreciate and i'm just incredibly frustrated that we're not getting sort of a substantive meritorious debate so much as we are just a lot of partisanship and ridiculous sort of conversations on the issue
1: yeah which rob called before the whole process began uh let's take a quick break otherwise we're not much time on the other side to continue our discussion on that uh we'll continue talking to keith the rob and shannon after this on inside bc poly Radio NL, RadioNL.com,
0: local news now. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio
1: NL. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Rob, i don't we start with you? Uh, there was some probably more interesting content in the scrums as opposed to the debate. Uh, one of the ones that caught my ear was Andrew Wilkinson talking about uh, whether the return ballot percentage, the voter participation threshold, if there was a number low enough that would devalidate the process. I've been curious about that myself. He said 40% or more or the whole thing's illegitimate. What do you think?
3: Uh, I, I mean, it's illegitimate criticism that there's no minimum voter threshold. But I don't think the NDP is going to abandon the process because of the low voter turnout. I think they have this um, escape hatch that they built in with the idea that we have another referendum in two elections. And they can just point to that as a way out of any low voter turnout. And I do think it's going to be low. But, you know, Shannon has pointed out uh, on Twitter and some others that it's not really we're not trending that much worse than in past referenda, although past referenda had different timelines. So yes. I think we'll probably end up with a fairly okay voter turnout. And uh, I just can't see the NDP abandoning the process because of that. They did it deliberately. They, put a, they, they, set the, they did not set a, a voter threshold deliberately. So for them to suddenly get worried about this now in the process, I, I just don't
1: see it. Yeah, we're what, uh, I think it was about 2 or 3% return so far. As of yesterday, Keith, I haven't seen an update as far as, uh, as this morning yet, but uh, uh, I did look at HST referendum numbers. They're sort of similar, although, as Rob pointed out, different timelines. The process, the mail-in process was twice as long as what we're seeing here. Uh, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think the turnout's going to be low, uh, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, it's uh, people, let's, let's say that it's 40 percent and let's say question one is a 55-45 split in favor of PR. I'm not saying it will be, but just say that. Uh, it will mean that a relatively small number of people in B.C. could ultimately decide uh, on a new voting system uh, in this province, which is troubling and will raise fears of illegitimacy, I think, among many people, but uh, there's not much he can do about it. It's going to be the way it is. And, you know, the the NDP's promised to take a look at it in two elections from now, but I mean, that's. I think that's a ludicrous uh, promise because there's nothing to suggest the Indy people will be in power two, elections from now. It could be a completely different situation, and it could be a, a PR situation where none of the the parties that may be in a coalition, uh, in their vested interests, have a have a uh, desire to to retest the population on this question. So I, I take that that thing off the table, but uh, the turnout is going to be what the turnout is, and there's not much people can do about it. It's unfortunate that uh, the NDP didn't set some some parameters on here. The Liberals, uh, in ter- not in terms of turnout, but in terms of the 50 plus one, re- at one point required 60% of the population to make a change, because it is sort of akin to making a constitutional type change, and in most organizations, including the NDP itself, to make a constitutional change to your... Sort of core bylaws and r- rules re- re- usually require two thirds uh, change. This is 50% plus one, which I think is too low on a, what's going to be a, a low turnout. But uh, I just hope people vote, and I'm not sure a lot uh, necessarily will
1: uh shannon is uh, adam sterling was tweeting at me earlier this week and i thought he made a, a pretty interesting point talking about uh, how they're taking years to get ride sharing right but uh, here we are moving at light speed on electoral change when one thinks grabbing an uber is probably a little less important than changing our electoral system so is that a, an appropriate contrast in your mind is it, does it kind of paint a picture or no
4: i mean I don't think you can make a direct comparison between electoral reform and uh, bringing in ride sharing, but yeah, it does seem that you know changing our electoral system is a complicated process. There's a lot of factors at play, Um, and it's a big decision to make. And somehow we are moving at sort of breakneck speed, Um, and that's something that the government has done to itself. They're the ones who set the timelines on this. Um, They've decided that you know we're having the referendum now, and if we choose a new system, it would be. Uh, In place for the next election. Um, When it comes to Uber, I I did have a little bit of a chuckle when Horgan said, you know, it's been a lot more complicated than they were initially expecting, and they've kind of gotten hung up on all these details around insurance products and that kind of thing. I mean, I'm honestly baffled at this point in time as to why we've seen absolutely nothing on rideshare, other than that the NDP does not seem particularly interested um, in bringing the service to bc and when they're asked about it by the liberals they tend to just throw it back and say well you guys didn't do anything about it for five years and we've only been in power for a year which is not a very satisfying answer especially for people who would like to see rideshare um, especially in Places like the Lower Mainland, where they really do have a lot of problems getting taxi service.
1: Uh, we got to move on this really quick because we're already over time. But uh, we haven't talked about the uh, the woke and lit comment. Uh, Rob, in your mind, does that kind of speak to a so, uh, plan come from John Horgan? Not plan. Does it speak to sort of the generational gap in this particular issue, or no?
5: Uh,
3: well, the pro rep is lit. Is the actual uh, name of the Youth Yes Vote campaign? I did a story on them a couple weeks ago. There's a student movement. Uh, the sub uh, part of the yes campaign. And it's actually called pro rep is lit. So I think that was manufactured because that's the literal name of the campaign. The woke part. Oh, (laughs) I mean, I I don't, (laughs) I'm not sure what he was doing there, but you know, Horgan does tend to to veer off in kind of these ad lib, funny dad joke sort of things. And I I guess that maybe was one of them. It's funny how many people are talking about it this morning. Um, And maybe that is a success. If that's what people are coming away with, I guess that helps Horgan's cause. But I I think it was partly, I'm sure that the pro rep lit was manufactured. I just don't know if the woke thing was just kind of his uh, off the top of his head. But either Mm -hmm, way, probably not that bad for him.
1: Uh, Keith, uh, if it's a generational divide here, and that's not uh, clad in iron, but I'm sure that by and large it probably is, uh, what can we sort of read into a possible result then?
2: People are quoting it today and having fun with it, but I've also also seen on Twitter a number of people saying old white guys should not try to get too hip too fast. Mm-hmm. I think uh, uh, I think it looked a little contrived and a little uh, a little over the top, but uh, I think it's more uh, fun and tongue-in-cheek more than anything else. I, I mean, again, I'm not sure it changes a lot of people's minds, uh, no. but again, it's just sort of a, a organism more than anything.
1: All right, final word to you, Shannon, real, real fast.
4: Um yeah I mean i do i think it's it's genuine for horgan those of us who cover him from the press gallery he loves his dad jokes he loves to be kind of goofy i I think it was very on brand for him, and while it might not play well for for everyone um the whole like dad sort of persona trying to engage with the young people to me i I think a lot of young people will find it funny, and we'll sort of be like, oh, ha-ha, and, and, and it brings a lot of awareness to the hashtag. Like, I personally had not the pro-ref is lit hashtag at all and then this morning it's all over my twitter feed so if nothing else corgan i think has given a bit of a bump uh to the youth campaign which could be good for his cause because i think that younger people are more likely to be willing to take that leap of faith with him on a new system
1: yeah whether they turn out and vote in numbers is a big question though uh we'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour a little late doing that and then more on inside politics right after this
0: News now, Radio NL six ten a.m. and RadioNL.com. For Camloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Shannon Waters, and Rob Shaw. Let's pack in some of the other uh, topics that uh, was sort of dominating the political so political spectrum this week. Uh, why, Shannon? Why don't we start with you? Uh, some interesting times in the legislature. QP this week. Uh, Ginny Sims made a lot of appearances. What was going on there?
4: Yeah, so we are back to the management of emails which surfaced in the spring. The Liberals brought up the fact that they had been filing FOIs for emails sent from staff, ministers' offices, et cetera. And both um Jenny Sims and Advanced Education Skills and Training Minister Melanie Mark um, came up for for saying that they had no emails for extended sort of periods of time. And It's another one of those debates that to me is really disappointing. I mean, question period, the joke is it's called question period, not answer period, so you're not going to get a lot of answers out of the government. But I feel like the questioning on this issue really basically devolved into you're managing records wrong, well, you did it worse, and then somebody brings up triple delete um, the scandal from the B.C. Liberal government on records management, and, um, you know, to borrow a phrase from Rob, we're all dumber for having had the conversation in the first place. <laughs> um Sims this week was basically saying, we'll look into that for you um, on a couple of different points. Um, but the Liberals brought up a lot. They sent out a long, long, long list involving 12 ministries um, saying that, you know, they have no records for this period in time that the, that the Liberals were requesting. And it really doesn't look very good on the government who, while in opposition, made a big deal out of improper records management yep. by the other side.
1: Yeah, yeah. A case of uh, do what I say, not as I do. Uh, Rob, uh, pavement politics: uh, the province moving to roll back speed limits on 15 different stretches of highways, including uh, several in and around Kamloops. Uh, this one lands on Todd Stone's feed, who disavows that uh, his move to increase speed limits was over the advice of experts. Uh, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, you know, raising the speed limit seemed like a political decision of the Liberal government at the time, and lowering them back down looks like a political decision of the ndp government partly i think um, as they can continue their strategy of poking at former liberal ministers and accusing them of doing a horrible job in cabinet which is clearly one of the kind of subtexts of everything that they're doing uh, at the legislature uh i mean you look at the data and you kind of wonder if speed limits should have been raised in the first place i remember covering it in 2014 you had the police department. Uh, inside the road safety uh, component of government, you had the police chiefs, the RCMP, physicians, the coroner's service. They all urged government not to raise the limit. The government did it anyways. Now you have data that, that has come out that says it is appears to show some type of factor. Although when you look at the data, uh, half of the 15 sections that they're lowering the speed limits on, people didn't actually increase their speed. So, <laughs> I mean, it's really... Political, And I think um, the people who are looking for the data here and the chief engineers, I went back and listened to our our, uh, technical briefing with the chief engineer. They were very careful, basically, um, just put numbers out and not make the conclusions that Claire Trevenna did, which is that more people are dying in serious and fatal crashes because the speed limits were increased. I think that's a political conclusion. Um, So all of this is to say that, um, you know, the Liberals... Raised them. The NDP are lowering them. Each side thought they could score political points for doing it. Whether it is actually helping on the roads, we're not going to know for a long time. And even then, as we saw this week, the data is is, is misinterpreted or reinterpreted by whoever wants to look at it.
1: Yeah. Uh, One of the other interesting things, Keith, was the uh, ramming through the changes to uh, recall legislation, uh, all with the thought that perhaps we could see a recall campaign or two pop up on the other side of the long weekend. Um, I know the conflict commissioner is not going to rule on anything, but what what could possibly be coming down the pipe on that front?
2: Well, uh, David Eby seems to be, the Attorney General seems to be the most likely uh, target of a formal recall campaign that could start as early as uh, Tuesday, next Tuesday. Uh, I don't think it looked good on the the NDP's watch to invoke closure to pass this bill that banned corporate and union uh, contributions to recall campaigns. That was clearly done to get it in place before a recall campaign against EB. Could start. Uh, Evie was the one shepherding the bill through the House, and the Liberals made the argument that was a conflict. And I think Paul Fraser, the conflict commissioner, had the correct ruling, saying, "Well, this is all hypothetical. There is no recall campaign. So how could I how can I rule on something that actually doesn't exist?" And he invited them to come back at a point when um, when the campaign actually starts. But having said all that, I think uh, again. People get a little excited about recall campaigns when experience shows. They're enormously difficult to pull off. You need so many signatures in a very short period of time. Even though there's a lot of big... You know, I've been in, in David Eby's riding recently a couple times. There are some pretty big signs out there about protesting the tax on, on high-end homes, and he's going to get, uh, you know, the people in those homes are going to sign a recall petition, petition. But there are a heck of a lot of renters in David Eby's uh, riding who are furious at the high rents they pay who are not going to be signing a petition to recall him. So there'll be a lot of noise about it, but uh, I'd be astonished if there was a s- successful campaign against David Eby or... Against the others who are rumored to have recall campaigns, including Daryl Plekis, the speaker, yeah. and even Rich Coleman, for some strange reason, is, is there in the rumor mill. This recalls is uh, sort of a, a, a tilting at windmills. It does, they don't exist in terms of uh, successful campaigns, and I don't think these ones are going to be successful either.
1: Yeah, I I would tend to agree, although uh, maybe someday there's going to be a first, and whenever that day comes, it'll be pretty interesting news. Uh, Guys, appreciate the time as always. uh, Thanks for joining me this week. Look forward to chatting again soon. All right, take
2: care.
1: Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Shane. There we go. There's Rob Shaw, Keith Baldry, and Shannon Waters. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics. On the other side, the B.C. Liberals' Attorney General critic, Michael Lee, will join us. Radio NL. NL radioNL.com, Local news
0: now. Amloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning and welcome. A pleasure to welcome to the show uh, the MLA for Vancouver Langara and the B.C. Liberals Attorney General critic Michael Lee. Michael, welcome. Good,
6: Shane. Thanks
1: for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Okay, so Michael, we're talking about uh, the changes that the NDP government ran through the House on this recall legislation, uh, removing union and corporate donations, making some changes here uh, off the cuff. You might look at this and say, hey, uh, nothing wrong with that. Something we've done at all three levels of government uh, elections otherwise, so, so why not here? So what's so upsetting about all this?
6: Well, Shane, you know, to start off, this is just another example of where this NDP government, uh, when it suits itself, can change the rules. Uh, the timing of this is, is very questionable in the sense that this is a bill that was introduced 10 days before uh, recall campaigns can be launched, which is actually uh, after today, uh, which is 18 months after the last election. And this is a done at a time where they're increasing uh, and making it more difficult, the rules, around recall campaigns, appreciate what you said in terms of uh, the money limitations on election financing, and that's consistent with what they did in last fall. Uh, we don't necessarily disagree with that, but it's been to increase and provide a, a new loophole. That is, the first uh, group that's in to file a recall, recall campaign uh, will be uh, basically the ones that can go forward, and no other recall campaigns can be launched after that. And what was most concerning, though, Shane, was they brought uh, to a close the debate and discussion around other aspects of this bill, uh, including uh, the role of volunteers uh, in recall campaigns, which is a big loophole that we saw in municipal campaigns as well, uh, which was exploited by union-backed endorsed candidates, including in Vancouver. They brought that whole debate to a close yesterday uh, in order to... uh, Uh, bring forward uh, um, having this bill come in place so that uh, now these rules apply to petitions
1: going forward couple things there, Michael. Number one, to your point about uh, being one and done on a recall campaign effort, is the concern there, in, in plain language from you, is the concern there that somebody could go in who, uh, and, and I'm just going to pull an example out of the air here, let's say somebody goes into an NDP riding the premiers, for example, and, and wants to make him safe from recall, and they start up a recall campaign, uh, go through the, all the initial startup process, and then just don't do anything and shut it down, and then you know that's now considered safe, the premier's off-limits. Is that sort of what you're concerned about here?
6: That's exactly right, Shane. And this is something that even the uh, Attorney General himself, David Eby, has uh, acknowledged uh, uh, both uh, in the media and as well in our committee process that we had on uh, Wednesday, which was uh, we had a couple hours to go at this, and uh, he acknowledged that as that a question and a concern that might arise, uh, but he doesn't have a fix for it either. Uh, so we have a situation where, as you say, uh, individuals, uh, citizens of any riding can launch an application, uh, pay their $50, include their 200 word statement. There's no review of the validity of that uh, application. Uh, if, if it meets the requirements, which are the simple ones I just mentioned, then it's accepted in principle. No other group can come forward uh, effectively for 60 days because that first group, first to file, will have 60 days to meet the test of signing up 40% 40, uh, 40 of registered voters in that riding in the 60-day period. But there's no check-in period. There's no monitoring on this. Uh, That's certainly what we were talking with uh, the Attorney General about. Uh, He has no ways of monitoring or overseeing that process. So you could have a false campaign being run here, which precludes any other group of citizens from coming forward.
1: It, it certainly looks suspicious. I mean, you could make the argument the intent is in the right spot in, in some areas, but uh, when you ram it through just days before a recall campaign could potentially start against uh, one of the more high-profile cabinet ministers, um, it does tend to look a little funny. So a straight question to you, Michael. Do you think that these changes were made and then rammed through the system yesterday in order to provide cover for David Eby, yes or no? Yes. And I, you know, I think that when
6: you look at the timing of this, uh, these are changes that could have been brought forward uh, in the last fall, cons- coincident with uh, their election financing rule changes. This has been an act that's been around since 1995. There has been uh, no issues regarding recall campaigns in terms of abuses. There's been 27 of them through the course of the history of this province. Yep. Only one was successful when the individual resigned in that process. Uh, these campaigns are limited uh, by dollar amount based on registered number of registered voters. So you're typically looking at a thirty-five thousand, forty thousand dollar range, uh, but to introduce this legislation at this point in time, in the way that they did it, is highly questionable. In the sense of the timing of it, uh, the fact that, of course, uh, as it's been reported in the media, David Ewing himself has been uh, subject to great public concern, including around issues around the school tax in his riding on the west side of Vancouver. There's lots of signs going up to wake up British Columbia regarding those issues. And David E.D. has been right at the center of that. And so, uh, you know, knowing that uh, that was coming, uh, you know, it, it really looks like this government has brought this in place uh, just to uh, effectively provide cover uh, for the attorney general and others who might be subject to recall campaigns, particularly when the seat count in the House is 43-42. It's on a very thin margin, as you
1: know. Yeah. Um, As you mentioned there, no one's really been successful. The one case you mentioned uh, even has some asterisks around it because of the the, the conditions. The the person in question, was it Paul Rietzma, I think? Uh, Yes. Yeah, he he resigned before the actual result was known. So even though it might have been successful, I don't think it really counts as a win, but uh, even before these changes, incredibly difficult to have a successful recall campaign. With these changes and even with the the original legislation, Michael, do you think that there's any serious chance that, that David Eber or anybody else could be taken out?
6: Well, I'm I'm really concerned about this loophole because uh, we will find out in in uh, in the next few days in terms of which group will actually come forward and launch, um, and uh, how they might move forward. I, I think that um, uh, British companies are quite active um, in how they feel about their members, and this uh, right which has been in place. and And I must add, uh, Shane, this is something that was subject of a referendum in 1991. Mm. Uh, where 80% of British Columbians voting in that referendum uh, voted in favor of having this right to uh, recall their member between elections. So this is a right that's been in place for, for those many years, since 1995. It's a right that should not be, uh, in my view, tampered with by political parties. If Given that the British Columbians themselves uh, put this in place by way of referendum, we should be looking at this uh, certainly by a third party, if not uh, something that we had brought forward as an amendment to this bill, which is an all-parliamentary committee, uh, to, refer, to refer it to the uh, Committee on Polynesian Reform and Ethical Conduct, which is the committee that I sit on as well. Uh, we could have had that review, but, again, uh, the government pulled the plug on this and cut short the debate uh, in order to meet their timing. And, and one other thing I would add to that is um, Andrew Wilkinson, our leader of the BC Liberal Caucus, had uh, filed an official letter of complaint uh with the with the conflict of interest commission yeah. and while we were standing in committee debating this bill uh, myself and mr eb uh this letter came out um and it, you know i appreciate that the commissioner uh found himself in a position where he wasn't able to comment on a hypothetical given that there hadn't been a launch of a recall petition just yet but this is the reason why they cut short the debate in my view because if this debate had continued uh, mr eb in my view would have been in conflict
1: well, that uh, and that brings up the question. The conflict commissioner said, listen, there's no official recall campaign, so I have no foundation to do anything. Uh, that's his stance right now. That could change on Tuesday, potentially. So, uh, uh, Michael, to you, are you guys prepared to go back and refile with the conflict commissioner as soon as a campaign's launched or no?
6: At this point, um, you know, there's other things we might be considering on that. But the nature of the, the initial letter, of course, was a concern regarding... Uh, David's own participation in the debate, uh, both uh, uh, moving the motion uh, as well as participating in the debates around the votes and the vote itself. So given that all of that, it was cut short. Uh, you know, it's something that was uh, without precedent, as I understand it, uh, to uh, put uh, this debate and this whole bill process on Wednesday into a, a time period where uh, everything was brought to a close. We were given only a few hours to go through second reading, uh, committee stage, and third reading. Uh, And this is not even the end of the session yet. So, uh, you know, clearly that was to clear the way where we could come to a vote on the Wednesday and then have royal assent yesterday by the Lieutenant Governor at 3 o'clock. So those initial conflict concerns regarding um, debates and vote proceedings, uh, Shane, have been dealt with because this NDP government cut short the debate.
1: Michael, always a pleasure. We're out of time, but uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Shane. Appreciate it. Uh, that's Attorney General Critic and BC Liberals MLA Michael Lee. And we're not done there. We're going to take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, Finance Minister Carol James. Radio NL. Radio NL.com. Local news now. Good morning. Welcome back. Well, money laundering's been in the news lots lot, as has the housing crisis, and there appears to be a correlation between the two. The province announcing this week that's creating some new regulations, uh, creating a new condo and strata assignment register. Joining us to discuss that is BC's Finance Minister, Carol James. Maybe just walk me through this thing. You're obviously looking at cracking down on, uh, on condo flipping and any associated... Um, let's just say some bad activity that that may be hidden in there, as well as some tax dodgers, et cetera. So walk me through, how, how will this work effective January 1st, 2019?
7: Well, this is part of our 30-point housing plan uh, to be able to make sure that people are paying their fair share of taxes and that we make housing more affordable. So what we have decided to do is put together a registry where people who are uh, selling condos, who are signing condo contracts. So just to give your listeners an example, you may see in Vancouver uh, a condo may be bought and sold three and four and five times, even more, before someone actually lives in it. So they're actually selling the assignment of the condo. No information right now is tracked on that. We have no idea whether the people who are buying and selling those contracts are paying their fair share of taxes. So what we're starting to do on January 1st, 2019, is that everyone will be required to collect and report the information through a registry about who is doing the buying and selling. That'll give us the opportunity then to take a look and make sure that people are paying their fair share of taxes, and hopefully it'll drive down speculation and drive down people who are simply buying and selling those contracts to be able to make a quick buck, get out of the market, and not contribute at all to affordable housing.
1: Yeah, so as far as the regime goes then Carol, uh, obviously a new one January 1st, 2019 and on. But is there a concern on your end about stuff happening prior? Could you see, like, for example, uh, a bunch of people trying to get condo sales in the month or two prior to that, uh, that deadline in under the wire so that some of this activity you're looking to crack down on actually intensifies in the months prior to the change
7: or no? Uh, We're hoping not. Uh, We certainly have put the word out. Uh, We announced that we were moving ahead on this piece uh, back in the spring, and so people know it's part of our 30-point plan. Um, And, in fact, what you've started to see, I think because of the measures that we're taking, the comprehensive approach we're taking on housing, uh, you're starting to see a bit of moderation in the market, Uh, certainly in the areas that we're particularly looking for that are the least affordable, Metro Vancouver, Victoria. You're starting to see more supply. You're starting to see the demand shift and that's exactly what we're looking for because, you know, when I have employers saying to me we have an extremely good labour market in British Columbia, one of the best employment uh, rates around, when employers are saying to me we just can't find the people we need, If they can't afford to live in the community that we want them to work in, then it's crying out for this kind of action, for making sure that we do everything we can, both for individuals and families who want to find housing, whether it's rental or buying, but also for businesses and for economic growth. Because if we don't have the people there to be able to keep that economic growth going, that impacts all of
1: us. So is there any retroactivity to this again, Carol? I mean, if there's a, if there's a flurry of activity uh, that, that may have some shady aspects to it between now and January 1st, is there any mechanism the government can use? Or is it just going to be the old regime is what it is and, and January 1st, we're just going to move on?
7: Yeah, we really do have to make sure the registry is in place. We've given notice now to the developers who will be collecting that information and providing the information to the registry. Um, but again, you know, there are always opportunities for audits if we believe that that uh, something's happening that shouldn't be that people aren't paying their fair share of taxes. Um, but I think ultimately this condo and strata uh, registry is going to make a difference. It it will stop people from feeling like they can hide their money or they can find a quick way in and out of the market. Uh, without as i said making sure that housing is there for the people who need it here in our province
1: how much of a role does actually identifying who owns what play into the condo side of this new measure i know that you wanted to create a registry so that we could find out instead of hiding behind shell companies and that kind of thing we know exactly who owns what in the province how much of that is mixed in with this
7: I think that's really critical. It's one of the pieces I have to say that, that when I came into this role that surprised me is how little information we have uh, around housing and around the registry. So we're moving on this piece around condos and assignments, but we're also moving on, a, on a, um, further information around people who try and hide their identity through trust. We'll now be looking again. This is a piece that will come forward in the spring. We'll be looking at making sure that those people have to identify themselves just like homeowners do. We put our names on the registry. When you buy a property, it goes on the land registry. We believe that that should apply as well for corporations, for trusts. Uh, And so that'll be another piece that will still be coming because, as I said, it's important that we make sure that housing is there for the people of this province.
1: You find yourself in an interesting position, Carol, as finance minister, obviously uh, the province relies uh, and has to a great deal, especially with the previous government, uh, of uh, the property transfer tax revenues and things associated with a a really red hot real estate market. Now there's no question something has to be done to kind of address that, but as you do, uh, the market sales are now starting to slow and you're seeing, uh, I assume, um, a correlation in the, in the amount of revenues that, that are no longer coming into provincial coffers. It must be an interesting position to be in.
7: Well, it certainly is. And, you know, I said when I became finance minister that that basing your entire economic growth in a province on speculative real estate or a speculative real estate market isn't a long-term plan because that's going to shift no matter what happens. And so I really believe it's critical that we continue to diversify our economy. We're seeing that. We're seeing the kind of economic strength continue British Columbia. We continue to lead the country when it comes to economic growth and I think making sure that we're providing support for our traditional industries, forestry, mining and also making sure that we're continuing to support the tech industry, uh, that we're continuing to support the tourism industry and other areas that are really taking off in our economy is going to be a better long-term plan for British Columbians than simply relying on a speculative real estate market that eventually is going to shift.
1: Uh, uh, While well, I got you, just a few other topics to throw at you. Speculation tax, obviously uh, a bit of a barn burner issue these days. Uh, I know with the recent legislation and accommodations with the Green Party, uh, there's now an opportunity for mayors, etc., to sit down with you and express their concerns. I'm wondering how much, how much leeway is there for them to affect any actual change? I mean, mayors have sat down with the premier in West Kelowna, for example, and said, we don't like this, we want some change, we want out. Uh, they don't seem to have gotten very far with their pleas so so what kind of power do do people have to sit down with you and actually sway your mind
7: Well, as I've said to to each of the mayors that I met with over this last year, um, we will be watching the tax as we implement it. We'll be taking a look at the impacts in communities to ensure that it's doing what we need it to do, which is providing more affordable housing, uh, putting more supply into the market. Uh, And so we also know that we don't control all the levers. Uh, Certainly interest rates at the federal level, mortgage rules, all of those things impact the real estate market as well. So uh, it is critical that we watch this, and so yes, there are certain certainly opportunities for the mayors to have, uh, give feedback, to have influence. Uh, If changes need to be made, we'll be looking at changes. So I'm looking forward to that. I I committed to meeting with them, but to make that a formal process in the legislation, I think is the right direction to go. And, And I'm looking forward to it because ultimately we all want the same thing which is more affordable housing in those communities to keep the economy growing, to make sure that families uh, have housing to be able to live in. And there are a number of ways to do that. So, as I said, we'll be watching this one closely and working with them to make sure it's working for their communities.
1: Well, the speculation tax, as far as where it applies, sort of remains static. Uh, for the immediate future, Carol, or or will you assess it sort of on a, an annual basis and say, okay, um, maybe a mayor comes and says, I would like the speculation tax to apply in my jurisdiction. Maybe you just say, okay, maybe it's time to expand it here, there, or wherever. So where are we in that front?
7: Well, we're going to stick with what we've got right now. I think it is a new tax, and so it's important that we measure it, that we take a look at it uh, over the the implementation. But I have had a couple of mayors who've said that they would be interested, so down the line, I think that'll be part of the review. We've got a formal review mechanism built into the legislation, but this once-a-year opportunity will also give us a chance to talk to the mayors in the affected areas and other mayors who may be interested in coming forward.
1: My last question: Interest rate side, uh, another interesting challenge. They've been fairly low for a, a long time since the big recession. Uh, it looks like they're going to start inching up, possibly the two and a half percent range over a, a period of a year or two. Uh, how much of that is is sort of uh, I don't know problematic's the word, but how much of that it may present a challenge budgetary wise?
7: Well, certainly something we've been watching very closely. We've built in a couple of interest rate hikes uh, into our estimates, uh, into our forecasts for the budget. So we've already taken a look at those and presumed that those. Will Will happen. But I think, you know, it is expected that the economy is going to moderate again. uh, I think British Columbia is still expected. All of the private uh, forecasters are predicting that British Columbia is going to continue to still lead the way regardless of of that moderation. Uh, So I'm certainly hoping it's steady as she goes.
1: Thanks so much for calling. I appreciate it.
7: Great to talk to you. Take care. That was Finance
1: Minister Carol James. Another quick break ahead on Inside Politics here on Radio NL. On the other side, another Cabinet Minister joins us, the Minister of Environment, George Heyman.
0: Radio NL. NL RadioNL.com. Local news now.
1: The B.C. government introduced legislation this week. It believes it's going to modernize the environmental process for big projects to explain what he has in mind. We have online B.C.'s Minister of Environment and Climate Change Strategy, George Heyman. Good morning, George. How are you?
5: Good morning, Shane. I'm well.
1: Good. Well, uh, you're a busy guy. Uh, you got a pretty full plate. What's going on?
5: Well, we uh, we have identified a number of things with respect to the environment generally, whether it's uh, climate, whether it's oversight by the um, by the public service on behalf of the people of BC, uh, reconciliation with indigenous peoples, uh, and a strong, transparent environmental assessment process in which the public can have trust, and these are all issues we said we were going to move on, and this fall is um, is the time when we're moving on all of them, so it was a great honour yesterday to introduce a new Environmental Assessment Act focused on enhancing public confidence, uh, a transparent uh, process with meaningful public participation, uh, advancing reconciliation with Indigenous nations but also, um, as importantly, offering clear and efficient pathways to approval for sustainable projects uh, that will protect the environment, but getting these projects to the finish line actually faster than the process we have today.
1: All right, why don't we start there. Uh, the environmental assessment process is, uh, is a controversial one uh, and one that definitely needs to be addressed. So uh, one of the things you have here among many is to modernize it. What does that mean exactly?
5: Well, one of the things that uh, that we've found over the years is we have uh, process that in many cases will take uh, well over a 1,000 days uh, from beginning to completion, in some cases uh, 1,500 days. I mean, that's a lot of years. And one of the reasons for that is um, it's taken a long time for industry and government to actually understand that time to engage and consult with both the public and Indigenous peoples is early, at the beginning, not well down the road when people have developed a project plan, a project design, and go to find out what the problems with it may be from a community standpoint or from uh, the standpoint of the nations uh, who have an interest in the area. And then work through trying to address the concerns, redo project designs, which often results in requests for suspension of the assessment process while the re, while the design is redone at great cost to a proponent and at great disincentive to investors. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And what, what ends up happening then is expensive litigation that involves further delays and a lot of money. We figured that if Requirement is early engagement, meaningful engagement with communities and First Nations. uh, Prior to getting to what we're calling the readiness gate, a lot of those issues of project design, uh, whether it's siting, whether it's process, uh, whether it's uh, dealing with cultural or spiritual values, can be built into the design early rather than forcing a redo.
1: Uh, one of the contentious aspects, George, is I'm sure you're aware, with the original Trans Mountain uh, National Energy Board process, was a real lid on public engagement. There is very strict guidelines. There is very strict processes, and a lot of people ended up on the outside looking in. Uh, how do you? How does this factor in public engagement? I mean, that can be a lengthy, onerous process, but you still have to hear from the people. So, how have you worked around that?
5: Well, first of all, the uh, the Kinder Morgan. Uh, Approval process was a federal process under the National Energy Board. It wasn't a provincial process. But stepping back from that and looking at the kind of consultation we'll do on provincial project approvals is uh, we have timelines at every stage of the process. We will support um, community uh, panels uh, that can be established by the Chief Environmental Assessment Officer. We are looking and will develop the mechanisms through regulation for providing some participant funding on these panels so they can uh, meaningfully do their work. Uh, And then um, there'll be two additional public comment periods in addition to the two that exist today. There's opportunity for the general public at different stages of the process to look at what has been said, what's being proposed, what's being recommended, and say, hey, have you thought of this? We agree with this. We don't agree with this. We think you should do something differently. So uh, we have to work out a lot of the details through regulation, but the act is structured to have a shorter time frame to uh, give certainty to members of the public, to communities to indigenous nations, that they will have their voices heard. We have a provision for independent review of the evidence, or facts, or science that's put forward by project proponents, so that the public be assured that it's not just what mining company is saying, but there are independent technical experts who are verifying that on uh, on the public's behalf, and also to ensure that um, that indigenous knowledge is uh, is incorporated, uh, their values are incorporated, and they can participate in the in the process. The other thing we're doing to uh, to ensure that this is expeditious is uh, in some ways our process is parallel to the federal process, the new federal process. It's not uh, exactly the same but it's meant that where we can work together we will. Uh, We retain independent decision-making but if we trust uh, the work they're doing on a particular aspect of a project where it's got both federal and provincial approval we will ensure that we, uh, we eliminate redundancies. That's something that was very important to the business community, and uh, our goal here is quite simple. We want to get responsible, sustainable uh, projects approved in British Columbia so that First Nations can prosper, communities can prosper, people can have jobs, but we don't want to do that at risk to the environment, and we think we've designed a process that uh, addresses all of these concerns uh, effectively and efficiently.
1: Let's talk about the First Nations aspect. Uh, I know you worked in uh, the UNDRIP requirements of free prior informed consent. Um, where do you draw the line between not being able to gain consent as opposed to being a veto?
6: Well,
5: what we have done uh, is created an act where the final decision rests with the ministers responsible, one of whom will be the Minister of Environment and Climate Change Strategy. Uh, and uh, in the case of... Uh, Take your project like mining, it would be the Minister of Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources or a project, the relevant minister. The final decision rests with the ministers. I think the important thing for British Columbians to understand is there are a range of uh, court decisions that increasingly over time have established the rights of Indigenous nations to um, be consulted meaningfully, to, um, to have their values, their views, um, their Indigenous laws and processes respected. And it's resulted in uh, a lot of costly litigation and a lot of delays. So it's not that, um, that we're giving Indigenous nations a veto. I want to turn it on its head a bit, uh, Shane. The process is meant to be consent-based, which means that it's designed uh, to consult and collaborate meaningfully with Indigenous nations to identify the issues that are a problem and address them. So we're trying to remove the impediments to consent. Uh, if, in the end, there is a situation where consent has not been given and the ministers are aware of that and, um, and believe that in the broader public interest it's important to give approval, there's also a provision to have a final meeting with the Indigenous nations to discuss that, and in any case, full reasons must be given. But it's my hope that if we run this process properly, we will rarely, if ever be in that position. Uh, we all know that, um, and people in Kamloops know, that sometimes there's projects uh, that just can't uh, meet consent from either the nations or the community. <clears throat> and uh, it's not like every pro- every project is approved. What we want to do is find ways to identify things that can be corrected in a project design and, uh, and proposal and fix it so that uh, we have... Uh, We have uh, benefits for British Columbians, benefits for indigenous people, and uh, consent all around.
1: Uh, how do we gain that consent, George? Is it a matter of just getting a yes or no? Is it a matter of revenue sharing? Um, how does that break down? Because uh, I know in, for example, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, there's some First Nations groups who are looking to buy it. Other, Perhaps they want to play First Nations tax on it. I mean, that's one example. But in order to get First Nations consent, where where do you get the buy-in? What What's the horse trading there?
5: Well, it's going to... Uh it's going to differ with every project and every nation, and one of the things we're trying not to do with this uh, legislation is uh, is tell uh, Indigenous nations how they need to organize themselves or how they need to come to the table. Each project is different. Each nation has different interests. Clearly, uh, um, partnership jobs and benefits are a big part of every uh, Every project proposal and uh, industry in British Columbia has known that for a long time. They'll say uh, nobody uh, believes that they can get a a good uh, development project approved in British Columbia without a partnership with First Nations. And we've seen lots of creative uh, revenue sharing and other partnerships, some of them and also include governance partnerships. Some of them include uh, involvement of Indigenous nations in um, ongoing monitoring so that uh, the, their people can be assured that uh, the project is functioning in an environmentally sustainable way uh, the way it was intended to be but there may also be cultural or spiritual issues that need to be addressed so we're designing a process where those issues can be brought to the table and they can be discussed Uh, and uh, we also have a process where if there is a A dispute or or a difference uh, between uh, government and nations that we're looking at building in uh, effective dispute resolution processes. So a lot of these details, uh, Shane, will be defined through regulation over the next year. It will take about a year to implement the new act before it actually takes effect for new projects, and we'll be consulting broadly with British Columbia's industry. Indigenous nations and uh, and people with an interest in the environment as we develop that detail going forward.
1: On the business side of things, George, one of the complaints from the industry or, or business sector is that uh, to get a natural resource project off the ground it's simply too much time, too much energy, and too much money for an uncertain outcome, uh, while not every project is going to get the green light. Do you feel that you've uh, built something here that's going to give industry some kind of certainty and some kind of expediency, or no?
5: Well, I think so. I had a very good meeting with uh, the head of the Mining Association with representatives of uh, a couple of the big mining companies in in B.C. very recently. We've consulted with them uh, all the way along, and, and including uh, uh, sharing with them our thoughts on different details that we were planning to bring into the legislation, as we did with Indigenous nations as well. And, and what they've said is uh, they're cautiously optimistic. They believe that they're going to have... Uh, more efficient process, um, potentially a more effective process, uh, um, predictable structure for engaging with uh, indigenous nations to seek uh, both consent and partnerships. And the other thing about the early engagement phase is there's a possibility that if a project is put forward, and this would be in rare instances, but if a project is put forward where there clearly are no problems and, um, and the issue is really just about what are the conditions on the permits, um, the minister may send those directly to a permitting uh, phase bypassing an environmental assessment. There has to be uh, public engagement and public input and indigenous engagement before that happens, but it's a possibility. Similarly, a project may come forward that just presents so many obstacles and um, that don't appear to be uh, able to be overcome, whether it's uh, it's a concern about community water, general community concern, Indigenous uh, concern that um, a decision is made by the minister not to allow it to proceed. The other thing that may happen is a project may come forward, and in the early engagement phase, the, the proponent sees there's a lot of work we have to do here in order to make this an acceptable project, and it's going to cost a lot of money. We have other options, and we're going to pursue those options rather than spend a few years and uh, and uh, millions of dollars pursuing a project that um that isn't a sure thing and it's going to be very expensive to make a sure thing so all of those things give uh, more certainty to business as does the ability to get a good project proposal uh, to the finish line much much faster than we do today
1: perfect uh george can you give me an update on the review case against the trans mountain pipeline from the province where are we at there
5: uh we're waiting for the um the court to uh, to hear the uh, details of the case that'll happen early in 2019. Our lawyers are working on it. These things, as you know, move through the uh, the court slowly. In the meantime, the National Energy Board is uh, following the federal court throwing out uh, the Kinder Morgan approval by the federal government. is opening new hearings, and uh, we have been granted intervenor status along with. Uh, various nations and other groups uh, in those hearings and we're preparing our submissions uh, ready for uh, bringing them forward later this month.
1: If, uh, If First Nations groups do in fact go ahead and purchase the pipeline, I know they're putting together a pitch and nailing down financing, would that change the equation from the provincial government side or no?
5: Well the project still needs to get approval from the National Energy Board. It needs approval from uh... the federal government we don't uh... as a british columbia government have the ability to say no to this project but we do have the ability to um, speak up for british columbians uh... and say uh... that we think there's a lot of risk with this project the other thing we get to do is to put uh... conditions on our environmental assessment certificate and now that the court has said marine impacts weren't properly considered and should be considered um, we are monitoring the NEB hearings very closely as well as the science review that we've been doing and uh if uh, new conditions are warranted uh we'll either ask the federal government to put them on or we'll uh, we'll put them on our own certificate uh if they're within our jurisdiction. Um, we have, as you know, uh, Shane, a difference of opinion uh, among different nations. And the the coastal nations are very firm on the risk they think they face. So this is never, I think, going to be a situation where uh, there's a uniformity of opinion among either nations or communities up and down the pipeline route or between provinces. What we need to do is is find a way to um, to address the legitimate interests of all parties.
1: No shortage of challenges ahead for you, George. Environment and Climate Action Minister George Heyman, good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, Shane. Take care. One final interview to go on Inside Politics. On the other side of this quick commercial break, we're going to talk a doctor shortage here in Kamloops and other issues with Health Minister Adrian Dix. Radio NL. radionl.com, Local news now. Good morning. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to be talking some health-related issues next with BC's Health Minister Adrian Dix here in Kamloops. The Summit Medical Clinic, also operated as a walk-in clinic, is going to close its doors next month. Something of a setback on a problem of a lack of access to primary care. And to be fair, it's a problem the government has really chipped away at over the last couple of years. Okay, Adrian, I know that you've uh, you've done a lot of work here in Kamloops uh, to a, to a sort of attack this, uh, this doctor shortage or, or lack of access to primary care that's going on in the community. Uh, not the Least of which, of course, is the expansion of Royal Inland Hospital, the addition of the Urgent Primary Care Clinic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, However, something of of a bit of a setback: uh, Summit Medical Clinic, which uh, also operates as a walk-in clinic, uh, is closing its doors, citing uh, overhead costs and and some staffing issues. Uh, Your sort of take on this, as far as as, is you know, do do you describe this as a setback? If so, how do we deal with it? What's your sort of perception?
8: I think we continue to deal with it. Um, I understand that uh, the the clinic operates as both a walk-in clinic and a private practice, and there have been some uh, personal reasons that the clinic will be closing, and this happens. This inevitably happens from time to time in all communities, right? Sometimes clinics open, sometimes they close. Um, I think the Division of Family Practice is working very hard to transition patients right now Uh, laterally into other practices in the community, and uh, there's good reason to believe that will be successful. As you know, we also have the opportunities through uh, HealthLink BC's 811 number to uh, connect uh, patients to either a doctor or a nurse practitioner, and we've had a lot of success in that. In the time um, since I've been Minister of Health, we've dramatically reduced the number of people waiting for a family doctor or nurse practitioner in Kamloops, and the credit for that is shared. There were some steps taken, as you know, by by the previous government, the previous minister, and steps taken uh, by uh, myself and by our government. And uh, the result has been positive. But that doesn't mean that we stopped or that everyone's questions are answered or there won't be challenges in future, because there will be.
1: Uh, one of the aspects of this challenge and again i mean who knows maybe some it had problems that just it couldn't it couldn't be no matter what you do but um, i know from talking to the thompson division of family practice here and, and tangentially with uh, with walk in clinics of bc's mike McLaughlin, uh, that walk in clinics say they're facing uh, a lot of challenges and uh, and over on the doctor side the family practice side a lot of challenges in operating a business uh, having the financial reserves to do so and dealing with with surging overhead costs and uh, so much so the, the local Thompson uh, practice has actually said the government needs to do more on that front. Your assessment there?
8: Well, I, I think that these are some of the issues that we're working on right now with the doctors of BC and all the local divisions of family practice. Uh, there are challenges uh, in uh, in healthcare now. For a long time, uh, the model of fee-for-service, for example, is favored by, um, by the doctors of BC and by doctors, and that has both some Um, opportunities in it and some difficulties in it. Uh, What we're trying to do is make um, things better. For example, right now, for young doctors across BC, that's why uh, in hiring 200 new general practitioners, we're doing it on alternate payment plans to get them started in their family practices more easily. That's why we've taken such a strong series of measures in Kamloops to improve healthcare in general. It's an extraordinary um, record, I think, for one year. Just consider the increase by 47 hours every week in MRI. We've gone from two cardiologists at Royal Inland to six. The STEP clinic has started, STEPS has started. Uh, in Kamloops, one of the first community health centers to start in a long time. We're working closely with them. We started the Family Practice Learning Center, which is not going to not just improve care now and attach people now to family doctors, but ensure that people uh, will have family doctors for uh, going forward in Kamloops. We've increased the number of full-time ambulance paramedics in Kamloops and Chase by 21. And, of course, uh, we're uh, building ahead of schedule the Tower at Royal Inland. So these are all important steps. Uh, that we're taking to improve healthcare in Kamloops, and we're going to continue to work with um, with uh, the Division of Family Practice there and divisions of family practice across BC. I think in general that uh, we need to make a shift towards team-based care, bringing doctors and other health professionals and nurse practitioners to, together to deliver more comprehensive, better healthcare services. And we're working with the doctors of BC to do that. All of these initiatives. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, Shane, ministers say, I did this. But, of course, we did this, right? When you talk about creating uh, the STEPS Clinic or creating the Urgent Primary Care Center or or building Royal Inland Hospital or adding ambulance paramedics or all of the list of things that we've done in CAMELS, those are things we've done together. And um, it's one thing, for example, when I We provide more resources to seniors' homes across BC, including in Kamloops, to increase staffing levels. But we still need people to provide the care on the ground, right? It's not just about money. It's about people. And so it's a team effort, and uh, we're working to make things better in Kamloops. I think the record in Kamloops, um, with one or two people, I think, who have been critical, um, has been pretty good.
1: Adrian, is it fair in this, I mean, the, the traditional practices, you graduate a doctor, uh, they go out and hang out their own shingle, uh, begin a family practice. Uh, it seems to me that at some level that's changing today, uh, whether doctors just don't want to work those hours, maybe they don't want to operate a business or lack the business acumen, or, or maybe the debt load is just too much these days as compared to what it was in the past. Is it? Are things different out there as far as, you know, the traditional aspect of going out and setting up a family practice or no?
8: Well, I think if you talk to resident doctors who are interested in family practice, they would say yes. And that's why when we're adding 200 family doctors, adding 200 nurse practitioners with an alternate payment approach, we're doing it to give them time to establish a new family practice, to establish their own panels of patients. And I think that's a, that's a reflection of uh, what we're hearing from from doctors, from nurse practitioners, and from the community. So, uh, yes, uh, times are changing, and we've got to work together to make it go. Because remember, uh, we're not just providing a new system. We've got to continue to operate um, now the existing system while we make improvements and we, we make this transition together. We've worked. Um, we're working to establish primary care networks around British Columbia. And the proposals come forward from communities, reflecting the needs of those communities. So, as you know, the first um, those things, the first things we've announced are in uh, South Okanagan and in Prince George, and in and, uh, and in the western communities and in Victoria, uh, and uh, and so on. Those new proposals for primary care networks they come from the communities. They reflect, and I think they're going to be. Um, uh, that's the right way to do it. So we're yes. Um, establishing standards, but we're working with communities to make things work in communities. And you see that with these proposals that we've already brought forward. They're they're collective efforts and uh, not just the idea of one person. And they can't be if they're going to work.
1: Uh, one of the problems of course with this primary uh, access to primary care is it's put on a massive weight on on the local emergency room as I'm sure it has in other other communities around the province. Um, with the urgent primary care clinic and the addition of some of the new resources you've thrown in there, do you have you seen tangible results out of RIH to say that the, the pressure on the ER is reducing or no? Oh,
8: I, I think so. I think you see very significant, number of patients referred out of the ER to the urgent primary care center where they get more appropriate care and get more connected to ongoing care in the community than they might in an emergency room. So I think we've seen some progress and uh, I'm pleased about that. Uh, but uh, we're just getting started. And uh, and uh, once uh, the urgent primary care center, is, we keep stepping it up in terms of, um, uh, of its operations. And once that we're going to see uh, much more progress again. But um, uh, th- these, are, these are difficult problems. We've made tangible successes, not government press release successes, tangible successes. There are fewer people searching for a, f- a family doctor we are providing better care in the emergency room. We have more specialists in key areas such as cardiology in Camloops. We've improved ambulance service, which I think everybody in Camloops and Chase knew uh, needed to be done. And we've added some essential services. But, uh, but Kamloops, I think, is a, in some ways a symbol of what needs to happen everywhere. And for people uh, who need care, um, they need it when they need it. And uh, so we're making the changes uh, necessary to improve services in Kamloops. And you think of that list of successes. Um, you know, uh, I'm always uh, uh, respectful of the work that others do. Even if they're not in my party, I do find the negativity, given that series of successes and initiatives in one community in one year from the opposition, very strange. Uh, I, would, I would suggest that they might want to work with us uh, to make things better, because that's what I'm trying to do in Kamloops.
1: Perfect. Uh, Last question. Uh, With the patient care tower, uh, construction's already underway, and that's fantastic. But uh, once it's built and then it goes into the, was it the third phase, where I believe the emergency room is going to be expanded, et cetera, what will that add or what will that do to the overall dynamic of healthcare delivery here, Adrian, once that's completed? Oh, I
8: I think it helps in every possible way, right? I mean, Royal Inland Hospital has served Camloops so, so well. But if you look at the the first phase and its impact, and now the second phase, it improves it in every way. It allows us to recruit more effectively because you've got an outstanding service. It helps us to put a, do a, give a higher quality of acute care services. It, the whole healthcare network works better when you have a modern hospital, and that's what um, Royal Inland is going to deliver to Kamloops. It's been a long time coming, and a lot of people deserve credit, especially in the community, for it happening. And uh we're on the road. I think it's going to make a a very positive effect in recruitment in the quality of acute care services in the connection between primary care services and acute care services uh, I think um I think the new tower is going to be uh, outstanding and it's why I continue to put the pressure on to make sure it's delivered on time.
1: And we're out of time. Adrian, thanks so much for coming on the show. That's BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. And that's it for today's edition of Inside Politics. Appreciate you listening in and look forward to seeing you again right here on Radio NL next week.
0: From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station, this is
6: Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.